so far on this retreat, we have reflected at some length upon two of the primary liberating insights uh, highlighted by the Buddha, the understanding of anicca, of change, the understanding of dukkha. We haven't so much focused on the third of what are called the liberating, transforming understandings in this tradition, the teaching of anatta, or non-self, which I would like to reflect on this evening. Now, this is a teaching that is really at the heart of the Buddhist teaching, I would say, the Buddhist teaching of awakening and understanding. It is a teaching, of course, which is not explicitly and shouldn't be explicitly taught in uh, mindfulness-based interventions. But, of course, it is built into (coughs) mindfulness training, just as we have built it into the practice right through this week when we learn to contemplate body as body and feeling as feeling and mind as mind. Of course, we are learning to contemplate the non-self nature of experience. In mindfulness-based interventions, that encouragement to be able to see thoughts and moods as passing events, the decentering, is of course the same way of emptying the moment of selfing. So the Buddha taught that all conditioned phenomena are dukkha, innately unable to provide lasting happiness and freedom. That all conditioned phenomena are anicca, that the ripples of ever-present change and instability runs through all events, all of our lives, all experience. And he says that all conditioned phenomena are anatta, are empty of self, that there is no eternal center, no independent self-existence to be found in anything that can be seen, can be experienced, can be sensed. Now, the teaching of anatta, non-self, and the teaching of shunya or shunyata or emptiness, I think these, these really were the most radical of all of the Buddha's teaching. When you think about the times in which the Buddha lived, where all around him people were energetically and heroically engaged in endless quests, to secure a present and a future self. And the ways that this was done was often through rituals, trying to guarantee a better future, through, uh, through sacrifice, um, through identity, through accumulating merit, accumulating good merit. Um, And the invitation to investigate the whole notion of the whole idea of a self being central in all experience and present in all things, the invitation to question that was indeed very radical in the Buddha's time. It was a challenging of worldview and it was very much a challenging of personal, deeply cherished personal views. 
Now, I think in our times we often engage in really not so dissimilar pursuits. How we may be prone to define ourselves by what we have, by what we possess. How we seek to form identities through roles, through uh, through attainments, through relationships, how we may try to secure a present and an unassailable self, and perhaps deep in our hearts we might find ourselves hoping and longing for the continuity of me. And I mentioned the t-shirt the other night. Actually, it is all about me. So it's really, it's, I think it's a very useful exercise to, to sense what our own emotional response is to the proposal that the sense of I, the solidity of you, uh, of me, may be no more than a view. That it may be no more than an illusion. Kind of like a mirage in a desert. Or even the illusion, the illusion I often think of as being quite meaningful is that when, you know, when we look at the sunrise over here and sunset over there, it really looks like the sun is circling the earth, doesn't it? I mean, that's, that's the appearance of it, that the sun is circling the earth, even though we know that it's not. And it's useful to sense what is our response to the possibility that it really isn't all about me. That our bodies, the emotions we experience, the perceptions, the intentions, our thoughts, everything that we experience moment to moment, that it, it's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. It's not who I am. When we hear that proposal, do we find ourselves feeling somewhat dismissive? Do we hear that small voice inwardly saying, of course I am. I think. Therefore I am. We, th- we think about our life, our story. In, in response to the possibility to all of this being no, no more than a view, do we find ourselves feeling disturbed? What, what would give meaning to my life? Would I surrender all direction and creativity? What would get me out of bed in the morning? We might, we might find ourselves saying, but arguing, but look at all I have done. Look at all that I wish to do. At the prospect of, of this, all of this being no more that are viewed, we find ourselves feeling agitated. Does that make all of my hopes, my dreams, my aspirations somehow a nonsense? Or do we even maybe even hear it as good news? I don't know about you. Do you ever get tired of yourself? <laughs> Goodness me. Yeah, I remember speaking, someone on a retreat, just finishing a month-long retreat, she said, I am so tired of the me story. She says, I wake up in the morning and it starts, me, 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 me. Now I go to bed at night and it's still going, me, 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 me. And it's such hard work to be a self, isn't it? 
It's just such hard work to keep it all going, you know. The clothes, the appearance, the presentation, the approval, the fear of disapproval, the getting somewhere, the striving, the becoming, the work of it all. It's really a big task to be a self at times. Protecting and asserting, fearful and anxious. Now, this is a very, I think it's a very, somehow it's, it's a curious idea for us, the idea of non-self. Because, you know, our sense of self is a very felt experience, isn't it? I mean, in, you know, it's why, it's why sometimes when we hear the, wor- the word anatta mistranslated as no-self, it feels so unpalatable and implausible. Because when we wake up in the morning, it's like, it's like our self is just kind of waiting for us, like a comfortable old pair of slippers, you know, and we just slip into it and get going with our day, you know, and there we are on the momentum of self. Now, I think this is really an important distinction between non-self and no-self. Apart from being a mistranslation, anatta, into no-self, I think it's actually more than that. First of all, it would make us dysfunctional. And from everything we read and hear, the Buddha and all of the disciples, the women and men around him, were very, very functional human beings. They were creative, they were engaged, they were challenging all of those things. They were very functional human beings. And uh, I don't know about you, at times I have uh, met with people, you know, through traumatic head injuries who, you know, have, uh, you know, total amnesia. They lose their story. They've lost themselves. And, you know, when you think I'm tired of being a self, you should feel how terrifying it is to be a no-self. Utterly terrifying. But I also think no-self is actually more than this. I think it's a dangerous translation. I think it's a dangerous translation. I meet too many people in my life who have been reduced to a no-self through abuse, through exploitation, through sexism, through racism, how much, you know, the, the, the whole perpetuation of genocide and sectarian violence and all of this really relies upon reducing people to being a no-self. Someone who is not living within a felt experience. So we have a navigational self. That's really good news. This is just skillful means, isn't it? We have a navigational self. Helps us to get in the right car, as I mentioned the other day. Identify our children. Um, <laughs> you know, go to the grocery store. It, this is all the really good news of a navigational self in the world. But it's more than that. You know, we have a, a personal story. You know, we are sensing human beings, each with our unique history, our unique experiences in our life, our unique in many ways, ways of seeing, ways of understanding, ways of communicating, ways of articulating. And of course, this is the beauty of a human being, that uniqueness. It's different than specialness, but is unique. So we're not here in the business of 
trying to annihilate the self. Non-self has a completely different implication. What the Buddha was actually saying is that there is no thing that has an independent self-existence. And he said he he taught the way to bring the clinging to views of self to an end. And the Buddha described clinging to views of self as an illness, a fabrication, an irritation, a delusion, an affliction, and basically an error, a mistake. And the Buddha proposed in his teaching that the majority of our difficulties in our life, our fears and our struggles, our conflicts, our confusion, our psychological and our emotional suffering, really stem from a mistaken view of self and from a reification and a centralization of that view of self, both inwardly and outwardly. And the Buddha proposed that the very profound release of this view, the ending of the clinging to this view of self, opens the door to all that is lovely, opens the door to profound peace and freedom, is what brings our conflict and struggle to an end, opens it, is what opens the door to an unshakable kindness and compassion and equanimity, to a life imbued with joy. And the Buddha often described this simply as a process of unbinding, untangling, unbinding from a mistaken view. And I, I rather loved this, and John referred to it the other evening, uh, this image of a house builder. And there's this verse from the Buddhist teaching. He said, Through many lives I sought in vain the builder of this house of pain. Now, builder, thee I plainly see. This is the last abode for me. The gables yoke and rafters broke. My heart has peace. In... A a neuropsychologist, Paul Brocks, he put this in a much more contemporary language. He said, from a neuroscience perspective, we are all divided and discontinuous. The mental processes underlying our sense of self, feelings, thoughts, memories, are scattered through different zones of the brain. There is no special point of convergence no cockpit of the soul, no soul pilot. They come together in a work of fiction. A human being is a storytelling machine. The self is a story. This is not to say that our life are fictions. Unlike Robinson Crusoe or Emma Bovary, we are embedded in a universe with physical and moral dimensions where every thought and action splinters into a million consequences. Who tells the story of the self? That's like asking who thunders the thunder or who rains the rain. It's not so much a question of us telling the story as the story telling us. And I rather love this, 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 
this kind of balance of seeing no special point of convergence, no special point of reification, and yet at the same time that coexisting with the fact that we are and that our lives have implications and that our every thought and our every act and our word has implications and that encouragement to enfold or to allow the wellspring of all that we are be deeply rooted in understanding, be deeply rooted in compassion, to be embodied. Now, I really apologize, actually, for giving this talk on the last night of a retreat. And I'll tell you why. Because I think there's a big habit in retreat circles to reserve this talk for the last night of the retreat. As if this is such a hugely complex teaching, you know, that you all have to get prepared, you know. Whereas actually this is one of the first teachings that the Buddha offered, you know. As far as the Buddha concerned, this teaching is kindergarten and it's graduate school. All at the same time. It's remarkably profound and yet it's remarkably simple. So here we are. I mean, I can understand sometimes why the talk on anatta or non-self is, is kind of given later on in retreat, because I think for us to really undertake a meaningful investigation of anything requires some stillness and receptivity, some, some calm and some, some mindfulness and some curiosity. Now, non-self, you know, these words in English, non-self, emptiness, voidness, they sound like big words, don't they? Big concepts. They sound very, very weighty. But it's also really important that the Buddha, as I mentioned, did not reserve this teaching for graduate students. And I would really encourage you not at all to be intimidated by these words. Because certainly from the perspective of this teaching, from the perspective of the Buddha, these are understandings accessible to us all in our own direct experience. And that the freedom and the peace offered by these understandings are equally accessible to all. And I would actually put it really simply that in truth, every single thing we do on this path and everything we single do, we do in this practice is dedicated to the process of emptying all moments, all events and all experience of selfing, of reification and of clinging. And engaging in this practice of emptying I think clearly this really can only ever be a, a present moment practice. Um, it's not a concept. It's not a future application. It is an applied understanding, I, which is quite a challenge. I personally, I love this kind of metaphor of the house builder the view of self being a house builder, the ways that we seek to establish an abode based usually upon what is identified with or what is centralized. So the primary mechanism we use to build our houses, think about it, the primary mechanism we use to build our houses is the mechanism of clinging or identification. 
we create these abodes where inwardly we sense I am, this is me, this belongs to me. Now this process of, of house building, I think, is, is something that can be, can be tracked, can be traced experientially in our own experience. And if we look very carefully, one of the ways I think about this, because I, I, I travel quite a bit and I, and I get sort of disoriented at times by, by jet lag. So I, many of you have probably had this experience where you, or you might have even had it here, actually, where, where you wake up in a strange bed and you wake up in a strange room and, and you have that moment when you wake up and you actually really have no idea where you are. <laughs> You know, and, and it's interesting that when you really have no idea where you are, how easily you also have no idea who you are. <laughs> you know, I, I find that so interesting, you know, and in that process of waking up, you know, in a strange room or a strange hotel room, I find, you know, gradually start to fill in the pieces. You know, I sort of recognize the furniture. I recognize, oh, yeah, that hotel chain always has those curtains, you know. And that reminds me I'm in San Francisco. And that reminds me what I'm supposed to be doing in San Francisco. And suddenly it's like the whole world is coming together. You know, the whole world's coming together in this sort of recognizable form. And I'm coming together at the same time. You know, I know why I'm there. Huh? I sort of know what I'm supposed to be doing, you know. I sort of can get up and go into my life with a sense of function and purpose. I'm really fascinated by those moments um, because we can see that that whole process can be really quite neutral, isn't it? It can be quite emotionally neutral, you know. We're just kind of building our world of the moment through perception. Or it can be happening on a ground of, of, of can be surrounded by clinging can be surrounded by clinging. And that all really depends upon what degree of understanding or confusion is actually very available to us. So the Buddha speaks of the idea of self, actually, or the view of self, uh, in, in three different ways. The first of all of these is called Sakaya Ditti. It's kind of my... My personal view, huh? my personal view of of who I am. Um, you know that includes all my belief systems, everything that I've built together through my life to to make me the me I my personality view. The second of these in Pali is called mana, and I will explain this a little bit more in much more detail later on in the talk because when you translate this into English, it's very easy to almost misperceive it. And it's called the conceit of self. The ways that we position in ourselves in relationship to the many selves that we encounter in our lives. And the third way that the Buddha talks about self is through the understanding of shunya or shunyata or emptiness. That not only is it impossible to find an abiding, independent self-existence within ourselves, 
It's also not possible to find an independent, eternal self-existence in anything, that all things are empty of self. For the purposes of this evening's talk, I'd really like to focus on these first two, the sort of what we might call personality view or personal belief system, and this other perspective of mana or the conceit of self, since I think the understanding of emptiness, the understanding of the emptiness of independent self-existence in all things, is actually pretty much a natural outcome of understanding these first two. Now, this whole sense of, of Sakaya Ditti, personality view, belief system about who I am, I think this is really, you know, it's an accessible investigation for all of us. Whereas mana, the conceit of self, is often a little bit more elusive, a little bit more unconscious, a little bit more hidden. So let's look at this first one, Sakaya Ditti my personal belief system, my view of who I am. You might just think about how you view yourself just now. You know, if, if we were all given a piece of paper and pen and asked to begin to write our autobiography and every line beginning with the words, I am, what would you actually write in this moment? How would you describe yourself just now? I'm bored, I'm uncomfortable, I'm confused, I want to be out of here, I want to stay here forever. You know, I, I feel good, I feel bad, I'm obsessing, I'm planning, I'm waiting. All of this is Sakaya Ditti. Now, sometimes the Sakaya Ditti can be really intense, you know, I am so uptight, you know, I am so restless, or, you know, I am so inadequate, you know, I'm so uncomfortable, you know. So sometimes it's really a big shout, hmm? and it feels very locked, and we can be very convinced it's here forever. Sometimes it's more like I call the background symphony, the background murmur of selfing, you know, just chantering along at the center of all of our thinking and our ways of seeing that we're hardly aware of until we look more closely. Now, however you would describe yourself right now, just think about casting your mind back a few hours ago, tea time, lunch time, when you woke up this morning. Is your view exactly the same of yourself or has it changed? And you can cast your mind back even further, remembering all the views of self that have felt so certain, so credible, so authoritative in our life, right back to our childhood, all the different houses we've built and inhabited as a child in our first relationship. Remember, I'm in love forever. I'll always feel like this. I'm, I'm really lovable. Our first breakup. The I is a student. You know, I'm a student. You know, I'm a parent. All of the changing faces and identities in our lives 
we remember. And do you remember how often those substantial, those houses felt? If you can't even remember, I'm sure many of you have gone back through family photo albums. And it's kind of an amazing journey, isn't it? With the certainty we had at different times in our lives that I, I, this is who I am, this is how, who I will always be. I'm always going to be anxious. I'm always going to be agitated. You may have felt this during this retreat. You know, I'm always going to be this difficult meditator. Now, the degree of substantiality of our houses is kind of like entirely related to the intensity of the clinging and identification that is present in that moment. Sometimes our houses are pretty flimsy shacks. And sometimes they're moated castles. Sometimes we seem to inhabit houses that feel to be made of reeds and the wind blows through. And what we actually see is that our view of self arises through reactivity, through clinging to the sense of how our body is, to our mood, to our perceptions, to our feeling. And sometimes the foundations are really weak. And, you know, we can see that those little surges of contractedness, those little surges of I, of selfing. But they're pretty weak. You know, and you shine the light of attention upon them. You shine the light of mindfulness on them. And they can kind of dissolve like, like soap bubbles. They don't feel so embedded. Sometimes there's just sufficient mindfulness to know it, and the view of self is emptied. (coughs) But sometimes we inhabit fortresses, views that are historical, that are repetitive. They're so familiar. They're like those old clothes that we just keep putting on. You know, I, I, I see... You know, may have seen this in yourself. You may have seen this in people around you. You know, sometimes my my father, you know, when he was used to be in one of his rages, before he got old enough not to articulate his rages so strongly, he just used to say, "This is who I am. It's who I am," which is usually actually a statement of a real unwillingness to look. It's who I am. Because the more prone we say, we're prone to say this is who I am, is the degree that we're prone to say this is who you are. You know, and, and some of you have heard me use this in, this, this example I, uh, of, a, uh, of a person I encountered, you know, some months ago when I, I was in the, my local post office and going up to the cash register to pay, and there was a young woman coming from the opposite direction, and she was actually nearer to the cash register than me. This was a simple fact. And, and I, I said to her, you know, please go ahead. You know? and, and she just stopped and looked at me, and she said, that's so amazing. And, and I was completely thrown. And, and it was a very innocuous encounter, really, and it was just a fact. And I said, well, why is this so amazing? She says, I'm the kind of person that people always push in front of in queues. And my heart sank. I thought, what a statement of pain to think, I'm the kind of person who's invisible, you know, or I'm the kind of person that people always just push aside, 
almost as if had been incorporated as a reality that was never, ever going to change. And sometimes we hear, can even hear those historical views in ourselves. You know, I'm the kind of person who doesn't succeed at anything. You know, I'm the kind of person who's not good enough. You know, I'm, I'm the kind of person who, you know, could never be liberated. That's a big one. It's a big one. You know, or, or you know, so uh, I, yeah, we hear it a lot, don't we? <laughs> I will never be happy. I'll never be successful. And I will never be adequate. And what we see, how much, you know, I mean, it's a pretty well acknowledged fact the way that we're kind of hardwired to notice the imperfect more than we're hardwired to notice what is well. I mean, you know, one time it was a survival mechanism. But we actually see today in our own psychological, emotional spectrum how much we're so inclined to intensify clinging around what we can't accept, what we fear, or what we are aversive to. What we perceive to be imperfect Clinging also intensifies around what we crave and feel we do not have. Now, the interesting thing is that you repeat something often enough and it becomes a truth, doesn't it? The more you practice something, the better at it you get. Not only the skillful, but also the unhelpful. And these historical or these repetitive views of self, of course, become patterns or tendencies in themselves, almost default positions. The body is perceived as self. Feeling, perception, volition, consciousness are perceived as self. I am the owner of all of these. I am defined by all of this. Now, in Buddhist psychology, it is, first of all, Pali is a language of verbs, as we've mentioned. But actually, the Buddha doesn't really talk about the self. He talks about the process of selfing. And that the whole coming to a view is a process and it's a continuum, which actually we have mentioned, that craving and aversion intensifies into clinging, Clinging intensifies, our identification intensifies into becoming and turns into the house that we inhabit, the I am. So the, this sense of I am is used very, very, in a very specific way in Buddhist psychology, this process of the idea of self, the process of self, is used very much as a, as a study of kind of psychological, emotional process. So we're not speaking about any metaphysical terms. We're talking about process that can be traced moment to moment. Now, with mindfulness, we actually do learn to be more present in this process. I mean, this tendency, and, and in a way, that, that capacity to be more present in this process has a very direct of effect of calming craving and aversion. And when craving and aversion are calmed, <coughs> clinging begins to calm. And this is a calming of that whole surge of selfing. Now, it's a, these are powerful tendencies we speak about. 
But their power really relies upon the absence of mindfulness and investigation. And as we cultivate the mindfulness and the kindness and the curiosity that's available to us, more and more we begin to see the the transparency of these personality views. We begin to see that self is not a noun. It's not an entity. It's not an essence. It's not stable. And clearly it is not independent. That it's a verb. I think that's such a wonderful liberation. That selfing is a verb. That, that, it, that it is a process. And what this is so important to see, that the introduction of clinging or identification into a process turns process into state. That's so important to see. Turns process into a state. So instead of sadness is happening, I am sad. Hmm? Instead of anxiety is happening, I'm anxious. So the introduction of of identification and clinging is actually turning process into a state and it turns a verb into a noun. So it becomes the I am. Now, this I am is not independent. You know, and this is such an important term. does not have an independent self-existence. So the view of self as of, of the moment is formed by the interaction with the other. So the other is the world of events. It's the world of the events of the sense doors. It's the world of the body. It's the world of the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, and the sense door of the mind. Sight, sounds, thoughts, smells, tastes. So not only are we constantly engaged in an interacting process with the other, welcoming, we, we add more things to that process, welcoming and rejecting, liking, disliking, fear, wanting. And if all of this is unseen, then it magnifies into clinging and shapes the self-view of the moment. So self is always shaped by the other. The view of self is always shaped by the other that it is interfacing with and what is identified with. Now, the, sen- the view of self, then, also shapes the sense of the other through clinging. So that's when we start to say, well, that's good, that ba- that's bad, that holds the power to make me happy, that holds the power to make me unhappy. What I dislike in you, you are like this with the power to irritate or vex me or make me f- fearful. Now, languaging is so difficult, you know, the English language is so difficult because, you know, there's always this idea, you know, I want, I like, I dislike. It sounds very responsible, doesn't it? It's, it's like, I'm doing all of this. You know, I'm somehow responsible for this mess, you know, because I'm doing it. I, I, I'm craving, I'm aversive, I'm clinging. The language is so difficult when we proceed every sentence with I. Not, always, not all languages are like this, by the way. As if there's a, this autonomous me, you know, this very troublesome me doing all of this. 
It's not really so, is it? I mean, in reality, sights, sounds, sensations happen and appear. They arise from a world of conditions that we've never been able to control. Somehow, we think we should be able to. But this interface of process of conditions is the mandala of every moment. And again, we would ask that question, who rains the rain? Who thunders the thunder? That life is this interfacing process of conditions, interface of process and conditions, either on a ground of confusion or a ground of understanding. And this is very much in our hands. I do not cling. Oh, what a relief. I do not cling. I do not cling. Clinging happens when craving and aversion are fed unskillfully. The other piece of good news is I do not let go. Isn't that interesting? I do not let go. I mean, I'm sure many of you have been in a situation of shouting at yourself to let go of something. Or even worse, when somebody else is shouting at you to let go of something. (laughs) Even worse, that's terrible. And somehow we feel like we should be able to do it, shouldn't we? Like an act of will. Oh, I should just let, I really need to let go of this. Try it. (laughs) Now, isn't it so interesting that even though on some level we can understand you know, that there's no autonomous independence of existence. Still, there's this little belief system that in the face of the difficult, in the face of the challenging, I should somehow be able to produce from somewhere some autonomous me who's going to let go of all of this. When the me who's trying to let go of all of this is exactly the same me who's implicated in the view of self. (laughs) It does not work. This is actually very good news, and I really would encourage you to take that on next time you shout at yourself to let go of something. (laughs) But how does letting go happen? Because we cultivate the inner conditions of unbinding. Hmm? We cultivate the inner conditions of unbinding. We cultivate the inner conditions of stillness, of calm, of investigation, of kindness, and letting go happens. I don't do it. And I'm sure you have all seen this in your own experience here over this week, that sometimes you can be sitting or walking and the mood is agitated, you know, or, or the body's agitated or, 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 or kind of aversive, and a difficult thought or a difficult memory marches in and it just sticks. It just sticks. And it it starts to grow and be fed. And if you notice that sometimes you're sitting or walking and everything is different, you know, the mood is different, there's more spaciousness, there's more calm, (coughs) and exactly the same thought or image come marching in and it just passes right through. What is different is not the content. What is different is the way that content the, the ground, the landscape upon which that content is appearing. 
Now the Buddha put it that when no view of self is clung to, no view at all is clung to, and that this is the end of contractedness and the end of fear and the end of pursuit, pursuit and avoidance. And perhaps we come to see in our own experience that the only thing that keeps anything solid at all, the only thing that keeps anything fixed in place, pinned down, is our view of it. And when we take away the views, when the views are relinquished, we live in a world of, of wonder. We live in a world of awe. We live in a world of, of, of unfolding process and, and the sense of being present for it. Now, the second way in which self is reified is through this, this curious word, mana, the conceit or the positioning of self. And the Buddha put this in, in three very, very specific ways. I see myself as somehow being less than you, inferior, less able, less com- uh, confident, less adequate, less perfect than you. Or I see myself somehow as being superior, better, more perfect, more adequate, more lovable, smarter, more worthy or more special than you. Or I see that we're all the same, muddling our way through life, condemned to a collective mediocrity, (laughs) unable to change, now, mana is, is very much more hidden, but it's, it's very much a, a kind of a powerful, powerful lens through which to see the world. And it has an impact in every area of our lives. We don't always see about what we say and what we don't say. Our, our willingness to be visible or our desire to be invisible. It, it influences our actions and our choice. It might influence about where we sit in the hall. I'm not trying to make you self-conscious here. <laughs> but there might be different in views between someone who sits on the front row and someone who sits in the back. And of course, that's not absolutely not happening here. <laughs> but it, it's how we view the world of other, what we aspire to, what we resign ourselves to. The stories, the underlying beliefs that we hold about ourselves, and quite frankly, mana is often a story told to us by others. You know, that you are not good enough. You know, that you are not able, you are not competent, you are not worthy to be seen or to be listened to. And the sense of mana, of course, shapes both our our sense of possibility and our sense of impossibility, even how we engage with the path, whether we sit here striving to be the next Buddha or feeling that it's really a pretty lucky accident if we run into a breath or two. (laughs) Think about our attitudes to practice and what shapes our sense of possibility or our sense of impossibility. Mana, now I'd really like to encourage you to naturalize this word because I think conceit of self has some uncomfortable kind of implications about smugness and things like that. And, and mana is not concerned at anything with that. 
But mana and personality view are very interactive processes, aren't they? Um, if I believe myself, if I have a deeply held belief in imperfection, of not being good enough, of being inferior, now how, that's, how that, is that going to influence how our personality view of the moment is shaped? I'm unlikely to be generous inwardly. It's possible I'll be very, very good at offering metta and kindness and compassion to others and probably not so good at receiving them or offering them to myself. We may, be pro- we, we, we may very much feel that we're undeserving. We may be prone to seize upon the imperfect and deem myself to be a failure. We may be hyper-alert. We may live with a burden of self-consciousness. And that aren't the, the symptoms of that in terms of, of the ongoing symphony of self-criticism or judgment. Everything we do confirms incapacity. The personality view, so man is shaping personality view and the personality view that is shaped in the moment of I am all of those difficult things also then tends to turn back and and deepen mana. If I see myself to somehow be better than you, I'll also be hyper alert, you know. Sometimes that's the the mind that comes in, you know, looks around on a retreat and says, I would never do something so stupid as that. You know, why is that person so unmindful? You know, what are they doing? I would never do that. Confirming my position of being somehow more able or better it's a lot of defensiveness in, in that superiority view, constantly needing to reassure myself, my competence. And if we somehow get more embedded in this, everybody's the same, there's, there's not much aspiration in that. And there's often a lot of cynicism, often a lot of cynicism, mistrust of others. Now, what I think we see so clearly is that both personality view, personality belief systems, and mana really are the great saboteurs of the Brahma Baharas. They're the great saboteurs of, of genuine befriending and compassion and joy and equanimity because these all rest upon the softening and the dissolving of reification, both of self and of other. Because this reification of both self and other, it's a breeder of fear. It's a generator of fear and aversion and separation. But both of these, mana and personality view, breed craving and the belief in insufficiency. And I think it is really the calming of selfing that allows us to befriend all things, isn't it? Allows us to befriend ourselves, allows us to see through our views beneath the world of appearances, genuinely to appreciate the heart of another, the pain of another, the joy of another. All of the Brahmavaharas rest upon this, this softening and calming of clinging, allowing us to have kindness as the foundation of all of our moments. Calming personality view and selfing allows for compassion, allows for empathy and generosity, allows for joy and poise.
So what really is the, the kind of emphasis and the direction of this path? It's not about annihilating the self. It's not about negating or erasing the self. It's not shouting at ourselves to let go, but really cultivating moment to moment this spacious awareness, this inner receptivity, this inner listening that allows us also to listen to the cries of the world. And in that stilling, allowing the transparency of selfing to be seen, allowing the clinging to begin to fade away, allowing the craving and the aversion to have less authority. When, when the Buddha extolled the virtues of homelessness so much through his teaching, he wasn't just talking about a lifestyle. He wasn't just talking about becoming a monastic. He was talking in homelessness and the teaching of homelessness about a way to inhabit this life fully without the fabrication, without the constructions of ourself, the houses that are based on clinging. And that kind of homelessness, the, the Buddha really spoke about as ennobled way of life, the most dignified and the most free way to be in this world. And I, I want to end just by reading you that quote again. Through many lives I sought in vain the builder of this house of pain. Now, builder, thee I plainly see, this is the last abode for me. The gable's yoke and rafters broke, my heart has peace. If we have just a couple of moments quietly together. I do thank you for your attention. So we have some time now for a walking period and if we come back at uh, 20 to 9, are you ringing the bell? Thank you for the last sitting of the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.